This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 14th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Lawsuits challenging Obamacare are once again reaching the nation's highest courts. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit recently heard a case involving the claim that the Affordable Care Act's tax on people without health insurance still violates the Constitution. Tim Sandifer, the Pacific Legal Foundation, brought the case. He spoke at the Cato Institute last week. Uh, we know this this is a long shot. It's always a long shot when suing the government, particularly over the Affordable Care Act, I think. But, um, but we, th- we bring these cases because we believe they have constitutional merit and with the intent of reaching the <coughs> Supreme Court uh, if and when possible. Um, one thing that we know about the origination clause is it does not allow the Senate to originate revenue bills. That's pretty much the only thing that's absolutely crystal clear about that provision of the Constitution. It says the House can originate revenue bills and the Senate can amend these bills. And it's not really clear exactly what the difference between originate and amend is, but the one thing we know for certain is the Senate cannot originate these bills. The question in this case is whether the Senate can get around that restriction by passing an amendment whereby it originates a revenue bill. James Madison, interestingly enough, opposed including the origination clause in the Constitution at the Philadelphia Convention. The reason he opposed it was because he said, well, you know, adding this clause is going to cause us to have these, dis- these debates if the Senate tries to use its amendment power to, to completely replace a House bill to, and, and do so by creating a revenue measure, then it's going to lead to lawsuits. And, uh, and knowing that, the delegates at Philadelphia included it in the Constitution. At the ratification conventions, there was only one real exchange on this issue in the Virginia Ratification Convention when an anti-federalist said, the problem is this clause is meaningless. If you allow the Senate to amend, then they're just going to use it as a way of originating by striking out the entire contents of a bill and replacing it in entirety. And Madison said, no, that's the one thing that we know they cannot do. And with that assurance, the Constitution was ratified. So although there are few origination clause cases on the books, I think our case falls squarely within the one thing that we know that that clause does not permit. Now, I said there's few origination clause cases. There are very few. The leading one is, there's really two leading cases. One's called Flint versus uh, uh, Stone Tracy Corporation. And in the Flint case, what the Supreme Court said was the Senate can amend a House revenue bill as long as the amendment is germane to the subject of the original bill. What does germaneness mean? Well, it seems like a pretty common sense concept. I would argue that germaneness is inherent to the meaning of amend, right? Without germaneness, it's not an amendment. Without germaneness, it's, it has, unless an amendment is germane to the original thing, it's not an amendment, right? No ordinary speaker of English would use the word amend to mean completely gut and replace. And yet that's what was going on here. In 1990, I believe it was, the Supreme Court issued a decision called Munoz Flores. And in Munoz Flores, the court said, we are going to enforce the origination clause. The House alone has the power to originate bills for raising revenue. And although it's true that the Houses of Congress can enforce this clause themselves, for instance, the House can refuse to approve a Senate-originated revenue bill, for example, that's not good enough reason for courts refusing to step in. So we will enforce origination clause uh, challenges, or enforce that clause in such challenges. Now, in Munoz Flores, the court didn't actually enforce the clause because they said in that case, it was not a bill for raising revenue. And this is where we get into the thicket, because the question, the reason why the district court dismissed our lawsuit was because it said the Affordable Care Act is not a bill for raising revenue. 
Now, the difference between a tax and a bill for raising revenue is the kind of thing only a lawyer could really enjoy. <laughs> but there are cases that suggest a difference. And what those cases say is a fine is not a bill for raising revenue. A fine is a monetary adjunct to some command, right? A fine is where they, we say, you have to do this, and if you don't, we're going to fine you. That's not a bill for raising revenue. Now, what, one thing we know from NFIB versus Sebelius is Obamacare does not impose a fine. The Supreme Court explicitly said, this is not a fine. This is a tax and a tax only. It levies a tax on the condition of not purchasing health insurance. So the fine exception doesn't apply. Munoz Flores also said that there are some kinds of laws that create a segregated fund, right, a particular program, and raises revenue to support that particular earmarked program. An example that I would have given had I had the chance this morning was that the, the, the beef it's what's for dinner ad campaign, right? You if, you, if you raise beef, you are required to pay into a fund, and that fund is used to advertise generic beef. That's not a bill for raising revenue because the funds go into a segregated fund, and they're spent on identifiable beneficiaries or for particular purposes, and those are not bills to raising revenue. That doesn't apply here. Obamacare raises tons of money. I mean, it's not just the individual mandate. There's a bunch of different taxes in this that raise billions of dollars in general revenue that go into the general treasury to be spent at Congress's discretion on whatever it chooses. So the exceptions that the cases have imposed to the origination clause don't apply in our case. Nevertheless, the reason we were dismissed below is because the district court said, well, the primary purpose of this law was to get people to buy health insurance the primary purpose test. And I think if we lose on our appeal, it'll probably be on this issue. Is that the, the right approach to take? Should courts say, well, yeah, it imposes a tax, but the real purpose Congress had in mind was such and such, and therefore it's not a tax? At the very least, the problem with that is, what do you do about sin taxes, taxes on tobacco or taxes on alcohol, which are, have both a regulatory purpose and a fundraising purpose, right? The, uh, ideally, nobody would smoke, and you wouldn't raise any money through a tobacco tax. That doesn't mean it's less of a bill for raising revenue. It's that money still goes into the treasury to be spent as the legislature chooses, so it's still a tax. If you use this vague inquiry into legislative purposes or motives, then it's all too easy for the Senate to rig that system by saying, oh yes, we're passing this bill, and uh, it's not for raising revenue, it's got some other purpose in mind, and, and to get away with it that way. And what do you do about these omnibus bills that Congress passes that have a variety of different purposes in mind? Or Obamacare itself, which has, uh, we remember from the severability argument two years ago, is a huge bill with all sorts of different provisions that do a wide variety of different things. Now, let's take a step back and think about why this is important. Aren't we just doing this as a procedural trick? Isn't this just a technicality and, and those sorts of arguments? Lawyers know well enough that the reason the Constitution creates procedures for passing or, or limiting the legislative power is to protect individual liberty. This is a point that the Supreme Court has emphasized a lot lately in Bond versus United States and in other recent cases. The court has been really emphatic that the lawmaking procedures are the way they are in order to protect freedom. And I think that's especially important in the, when we're talking about the Affordable Care Act. Right? If Congress can use its taxing power, its unicorn tax, as, as Ilya puts it, to to accomplish these goals like forcing people to buy insurance. You know, the, what kind of tax is the individual mandate tax? It's not a direct tax, the court says. It's not an indirect tax, the court says. It's not an income tax. 
The Constitution does not allow for any other kinds of taxes. And yet here we have a tax on the status of not purchasing health insurance. If Congress can do that, that's all the more reason why we need more democratic control over the taxing power, which of course was the reason why Congress, the House of Representatives, has that power in the first place. The Founding Fathers were worried about the danger of the Senate, the least democratic branch of the federal government. It's not entirely elected in a single election. They serve the longest terms of any elected federal official. The founding fathers were worried that the least democratic branch of the federal government might exploit the taxing power to ram things down the public's throat, like the Affordable Care Act, which in the majority of Americans have never supported from day one and today do not support. And that's why if the Congress is going to have the authority to impose taxes of the sort like the ACA, it's all the more important for that power to be kept in the hands of the most democratic branch as the Constitution requires. Tim Sandifer is with the Pacific Legal Foundation. You can watch the full forum at our website, cato.org.